Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a good crew here in the studio. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. And good morning to our special guest, Dr. Megan Rolf, who's here with us, who's a geneticist in the Kansas State Department of Animal Science. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. So we're happy to have her with us because we've had some listener questions and we've kind of saved a couple of these so that we could talk with a geneticist about them. We're going to talk EPDs today, what they mean. We'll also talk about how to manage heterosis and balance that with management labor in a single breeding pasture. And then Dustin's got some economic questions for us as well. So looking forward to that discussion. Before we get into those guys on the way into work this morning, I saw a sign beside the road that said, and I like both the name and the business idea, goats on the go. And essentially the bottom of the sign said, we'll bring our goats to your pasture for grazing so that they can help clean off the brush which seems like a good plan. So you could move your goats around all summer, free grazing, and then they come back home. Have you seen any unique business ideas like that? Is it free or is they actually being paid? I, did, I didn't ask. Maybe you have to pay for the goats to come, in which case it's a double win. That's the economist <laughs> thinking right there. So have you seen anything like that? I don't know about seeing anything like that. One thing that's always puzzled me, the concept of a dude ranch, because I mean, in Colorado, when I lived out there, you, you heard of people what I've always had understood is why would somebody pay to go build somebody else's fence <laughs> or do, you know, chore. I just don't understand why you would, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the, you've read Tom Sawyer, right? <laughs> Tom Sawyer was the best at that. <laughs> I'll only charge you a dollar to paint part of the fence. Brian? I, you know, I, when we were in California, we saw a lot of those kind of use of byproducts in, in usual ways because they have very diverse agriculture out there and so saw almond holes used as bedding for dairy cows probably the most unique was we we lived in an area that had a large tomato growing area and we had there were a couple feed yards that used tomato waste byproduct as a feed ingredient and so you know kind of the getting something for a very cheap it was just kind of an interesting concept to me right i'm used to corn and hay in a bunk and to see tomato slush was kind of interesting i don't i don't know that that yeah that might be did the cattle like it the tomato slush yeah they ate it it was really hard to tell who had digestive upset didn't because there's so much liquid in the diet but yeah <laughs> i was gonna say everybody has liquid in there <laughs> megan how about you well, the first thing that springs to mind is people who may take like honey or goat milk and make soap. But the second thing that sprung to mind was the ever famous goat yoga. Goat yoga. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, I ha have you done that? I have not. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, I was going to ask these guys, but I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I know the answer. <laughs> pretty sure they both have. So I just don't want to have them expose it on air. So let's jump in, and, and Megan, the first, first question we've got, and, and this is, I think, a really good one, and it talks about, can, can we just go over the basics of EPDs? A lot of times we dive into the details, and we talk about interpreting this versus this, but the EPD, or the expected progeny difference, I may just ask you to start with a definition, and then how are those things collected? Yeah, so let's start with the definition. So you're exactly right. We're talking about expected progeny differences. So the definition is a little bit in the name. So it's the differences that we expect to see in the performance of a group of progeny when we take, for example, one sire versus another mated to the same group of cows. So if we take something that's fairly straightforward, like weaning weight EPDs, and we take bull A and bull B, if the 
bull A's weaning weight EPD is 50 and bull B's weaning weight EPD is 70, we expect the calves of bull B to be on average about 20 pounds heavier at weaning than the calves of bull A if we mated them to the same group of cows. So what we're saying there is I can't just take an EPD by itself. I have to interpret it relative to another bull within that breed, right? They're breed specific. So I have to look at within that breed, that 20 pounds, bull A and bull B. But in your example, if bull A is one breed and bull B is a different breed, can I, can I compare those two numbers? You hit on a couple of great points there. And we don't want to compare the EPDs of bulls across breeds as a general rule. If they've been run in the same evaluation together, there can be exceptions to that sometimes. But that's a good rule of thumb is work with these within breed. And if you want to compare animals, what you want to do is you want to compare an animal to another animal and subtract those values. Or you can also compare the EPD value itself to something like a breed percentile ranking so that we can say, hey, this bull has a marbling EPD that's in the top 10% of the breed or the top 30% or, hey, it's about breed average. So that gives you a little bit broader information than just comparing two bulls because you could be comparing two amazing bulls or two pretty crummy bulls and you'll be able to get the difference between them, but you won't necessarily know where they rank in terms of the entire breed. So you mentioned, Megan, about the there were exceptions where you could compare two bulls if they use the same methodology to calculate the EPD, right? So how, how do they calculate an EPD for a specific trait? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reason we can't compare these is because the methodology to calculate EPDs is, is the same pretty much with, with some different software exceptions and, and things like that. The big difference is different breeds will have different bases which means a different year that the EPD for the average was zero, okay? So because those are different, it makes those values not necessarily comparable if bulls aren't in that same exact evaluation. So the calculation is the same. It's the baseline that is different between, potentially different between the two breeds. Generally speaking, yes. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of the data that goes into those, you would have phenotypes that are collected by breeders, and also recording of pedigree data is very important. So the animal sire and dam is important. Sometimes genomic data goes into those EPD calculations, but those are kind of the three big pieces of data that go into a big statistical model that then gives us these EPDs as outputs. So I got a quick question for you. You mentioned the word EPDs and you've given <laughs> an example of weaning weight. How many EPDs are out there? Ah, there's a whole lot of EPDs out there. Some breeds will publish upwards of 20. EPDs, and then you might have selection indexes on top of that. Some breeds are, are a little bit more conservative in the number of EPDs that they publish, but most breeds have a, a decent number of EPDs that they're that they're reporting for their members. So, and you've talked about EPDs from the the sire perspective. Do they have maternal EPDs as well? Do they call them EPDs? Is it something different? Yeah, great question. So, so they do have maternal EPDs. They have terminal EPDs. They have EPDs for. Anything from growth traits to maternal milk to carcass traits. So there's, there's a lot of different EPDs on a lot of different traits. You will get the same set of EPDs on a bull or a cow within the same exact breed. So the reason I focused on bulls is a lot of times for commercial customers that maybe are using, that have a commercial cow herd, those commercial cows probably won't have EPDs to use for selection. So the bull is kind of the, the major place that you can put a lot of 
selection pressure to make changes within your herd, particularly if you're keeping replacement females. Absolutely. And, and good background on how they're calculated and it incorporates the data, like you said, from the, both the pedigree and then the measurements on that animal. But we'd be remiss to not talk about the other thing that comes with the EPD is often expressed with an accuracy. So can you tell us what accuracy means? Yeah, accuracy on an EPD, in my mind, is really a risk management tool. So it kind of gives you an idea how much data and information is in that EPD calculation and how much confidence we have that that number is the right number, that it's not going to change over time. So if we have a lower accuracy animal, regardless of that low accuracy, that EPD estimate includes all of the data that we have, and it's the best value that we have to use for selection on that trait. But we need to know when we see a low accuracy EPD that it may change more over time than an EPD for a bull with a really high accuracy, maybe an AI sire. So when we use a really high accuracy sire, um, we are very confident in that EPD estimate and we know that it's not going to change nearly as much or doesn't have as much potential to change over time. So it's a great way to balance risk management. So maybe you use a high accuracy calving ease bull to AI your heifers. And then you come back and take a few more chances with your cows that you're going to breed to a yearling uh, natural service sire, for example. Yeah, I think of it like, well, many of us, you get to this time of year and we're starting to think football again. So coming into the football, how good is your team going to be this fall? That's my yearling bull that doesn't have a lot of progeny, right? I've got a pretty good idea. I've looked at the players, the coach. I know what they're going to do. And then as they start playing a few games, my accuracy of are they really going to be good this year greatly increases. And as you said, the AI sire is we're almost at the end of the season. Were they going to have a good year or not? We know. Is that a fair analogy? That's a great analogy. Every game that they play is like another piece of data that we're adding into the evaluation. So another phenotype on the animal itself, another phenotype on, on relatives, genomic data. All those things are like playing games throughout the season that get us to, ultimately, if we have lots of progeny data, that team at the end of the year that we we know how they're going to perform. Yeah, well, th this is really good information. And that brings up two good points. One, when you your EPDs will change over time, even if you don't report any more data, because there will be more data reported on half sibs or pedigree information adds in. And two, if you want to know about the accuracy, most breed associations have a list of how, how much that might change in that particular trait with a with that level of accuracy so great information there on epds and we're going to come back and talk heterosis in a minute but i know dustin you had some questions for us yes so as we mentioned last week's podcast that i spent a couple weeks at work working in uh, europe this summer so far and so i got a just a couple questions related to europe so i want to start by testing your knowledge on the geography because i did not know this answer but uh how many is this where we can opt out because this, this is the point already. You've gone beyond my knowledge. <laughs> All right. So how many countries are in Europe? Are we talking the EU? We'll get to that next. No, just the European countries. Brian's taking off a shoe. 14. No, nope. you're off by a fair bit. I'll say 25. Yeah, I was going to say higher than 14. It's it's 45, and I wouldn't have wow. got that right. Can you tell me the largest country in Europe? I never would have guessed. Area-wise? Uh, population. Does oh, Russia count as part population. of Europe? That's part of the geography we're <laughs> educating you on. 
I'll say Germany. Spain. I'm thinking further north, oh. like uh, Sweden, maybe. You were right the first time. You shouldn't have. <laughs> Can anybody guess what the smallest one is? I never would have. I would have, but. Population. Population. I'll go Kosovo. Belgium. Lithuania. The Holy See. Oh, oh yeah. 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 That's right. Like a little under a thousand people, I think. Anyway, so now going back to Brian's question, the EU is the EU. There's 27 countries. And the reason that is we trade with the EU. And so we do have a high quality beef quota. So we can trade beef. And I think in 2019, we came up with a, some kind of new trade agreement. So it's, the, the quota is actually increasing every year. And I think this year it's almost up to 28,000 metric tons. And I think last year was like 23, 23, five, of which we only exported about half, a little over half. So we're not quite, we're not using our full quota. So just a little bit of trade trivia. Think about per capita consumption in meat, meat consumption. So this is all meat. We'll get to specific species here in a minute. In the EU, who consumes the most amount of meat on a per capita basis? Which country of the EU? We'll just do the EU. Spain. I was going to say Spain. I've been to Spain, so I'll just go with Spain, too. All right. You guys were right. It is Spain. It's approximately 210 pounds. Wow. That's higher That's higher than our consumption here, isn't it? What's Do you the, know off the top of our head? What's the U.S.? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was around 80. Beef or meat? Beef. Oh, oh yeah. I'm just he thinking said beef. He said yeah. meat, meat. Gotcha. And you're wrong with that, too, but we'll... we'll... <laughs> <laughs> we, we can come back to that one next. Okay. So in the U.S., it's about 226 pounds. Okay. So per capita consumption. Just a little more. Right. So okay. Yeah. Yep, okay. Yep, yep. Uh, so beef, I think we're at about, what, 56 pounds per capita? Isn't that? Yeah, that might be right, might be 60 instead of. I was 60. thinking 80. Yeah, I was and thinking. Pork is just yeah. a little under 50, but poultry is probably 90. Actually, I can tell you, what's the, the number one? Uh, consumed meat in the Europe. Just name name the top three. Chicken, pork, beef. How does that compare to the U.S.? What we just said. Same. Same. No, same. Same top so three. Pork in the EU, poultry and beef is number three, whereas it's poultry, beef, and pork here in the United States. Hmm. So, just an interesting. Excellent knowledge so next time you're at a party you can whip that out and i don't think i i don't think i i should be sharing my <laughs> european knowledge based on this conversation <laughs> i think you're yeah that's interesting stuff so so the pork is higher than poultry there because because i've seen some of the charts here and poultry has exploded in the u.s and really gone high as a source of of low-cost protein but it hasn't done that there or has it and pork has just still stayed ahead of it I don't know about EU, but yeah, I think what in the 70s or so, I think we were able to, I mean, poultry just started. I think convenience yep. was a big uh, driver of that as well. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Excellent. Good, good information there, Dustin. And it's, and it's interesting as we think about our trading partners that it's good to kind of expand our perspective, especially as we are doing a lot of exports as a, as a beef industry and having high quality products. To go other places is important. It's also important for us as a, an operation to have a high quality product that leaves our ranch 
which is leads me to our second listener question, which we talk a lot, Megan, about how to make these different genetic decisions. How can we do things differently on our ranch or operation? Sometimes we have one breeding pasture, so we don't have unlimited decisions ability genetic wise. And we want to balance management ease with bringing in heterosis or genetic variability. What are some of my options for doing that in a single breeding operation? Yeah, so single breeding operations with with maybe a single breeding pasture, I think have to be a little bit creative in how they do that. Um, so there's, there are, however, lots of different options. So you can purchase crossbred replacement heifers, for example, and use a terminal sire so you don't raise any of your own replacements. If you really want to raise replacements, you can do something like a, a rotation over time. So you use one breed of bull for um, a couple of years, and then you rotate in and get a new breed of bull. Um, so that when you keep those replacement females, um, you will have some heterosis in your herd. That system is not quite as uniform in terms of, of performance and the amount of heterosis as if you purchase replacement females. Um, you can also do sort of creative things like AIing animals um, of a, to a specific breed, maybe keeping replacements out of your AI crop and then using a natural service sire of a different breed so that you can have some, some different breed composition coming into the herd, even with a single bull. Okay, great overview. Now let me break some of those apart a little bit. So you said option one, terminal sire on my different crossbred herd. So I get crossbred females and then I use a terminal sire. And when you're saying terminal sire, kind of explain what do you mean by that? What type of sire is that what makes it terminal yeah great question so one of the places that we get a lot of benefit from heterosis is in having crossbred cows so that's why I mean, you could buy straight bred females and do the same thing but if it were me i would go look for those crossbred females so that you have that heterosis within that cow herd to take advantage of better um, advantages in fertility and longevity and things like that those lowly heritable traits and so you can focus on maternal traits in selecting those females that you would purchase there. And then in your bull, you can come in and look for a more kind of curve bending bull that really fits a market target. So um, focusing on things like growth or carcass traits, things of that nature. Yeah. So and, and explain when you say curve bending, what, what does that mean? looking for really, really superior bulls in maybe a more narrowly focused set of traits. Um, because anytime we try and select a bull that does everything, it's harder, right? So if we're trying to find a bull that has good maternal traits and good terminal traits so that we can keep replacements, but still have a good product for the marketplace, that's harder to do than it is to find a bull that, that really excels in a narrower, more market target focused suite of traits. Yeah, and I think of, of curve bending as, and, and you can tell me if this is correct or not, most bulls, like we have traits like birth weight and weaning weight that are typically correlated, right? L higher birth weight, higher weaning weight. But a curve bending bull might be one of those that's on the lower end of the curve where he has a low birth weight and a high weaning weight. Is that a fair analogy for when you say curve bending, it's a more rare bull typically? Yeah, so, so in that scenario, you could look for a bull that has maybe a high calving ease EPD, but that still has really good EPDs for like growth and carcass traits, for yeah, example. Yeah, because usually those are negatively correlated or positively correlated, and you're trying to find the ones that shake out the way you want. I want easy calving and good growth. Yes. 
But and, and maybe just to reemphasize a little bit, Megan, what you said is, in this scenario, you're purchasing the crossbred females, and you're expecting them to bring a certain set of maternal characteristics, and so you don't you don't necessarily need to buy a bull that duplicates those same. So if you have if you have a group of heifers that or, or cow crossbred cows, whatever it is that you expect to have high milk EPDs and thus probably wean some heavier calves, you may not necessarily want to double down on the growth characteristics from the bull. You might want calving ease or something else that he can bring. And so instead of finding that one bull that does everything well, you're really mixing and matching the maternal and the paternal characteristics to fit what you're ideally looking to do. Was that a good summary or? Yeah, I think so. So in the beef industry, we don't necessarily do that maybe as much as some of the other industries like pork would be a great example that has maternal and terminal lines that are selected for these two separate purposes in the beef industry we don't tend to do that as much but we absolutely could and we can and even in this scenario where we're purchasing females we don't necessarily have to purchase heifers either we can purchase um animals that have that have had a calf or two um, and then probably the calving ease isn't even as big of a concern and we can really go as far as we we really feel comfortable with with growth and and carcass traits and i think brian your question kind of makes the second options that she talks about kind of highlights the complexity of those because what you said is i want to have a set of cows that i can match with a bull based on certain traits however the second options you described i'm going to keep some heifers for a few years out of this cross and then i'm going to keep some heifers for a few years out of this cross as you can imagine my cow herd now becomes different sets and matching a single bull to those sets becomes challenging. Is that the second option you described? Yeah, it's definitely more challenging. There there are some tools to help with that. Lots of breeds have kind of all-purpose indexes that really try and balance selection on both maternal and terminal traits. So if I was going to do something like that, that's probably the type of selection tool I would gravitate towards. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and I think it becomes a big challenge management wise to keep track of that year over year certainly easier to go to the terminal cross but then the leap i have to make is i have to be willing to purchase somebody else's heifers or females well and and the reason i kind of summarize that way is we talked about having this discussion about heterosis and a one breeding pasture and i kind of think of that as well that's a there's a lot of negatives right there's a huge challenges there's things like that but there's also some opportunities if you do it right you you can actually maybe end up in a little better spot than you know if that's what you've got you try to make the most of it and maybe the way to make the most of it is that you invest a little more by purchasing females but you might actually be able to have a more targeted genetic plan because you don't have a plan b right you only have plan a shooting at one target yep. is easier than trying to shoot at two terminal and maternal yep. and that and that's the split the hurdle that is hard for some to get over yeah, and I think sometimes it's tempting to think of replacement females that we raise as free, but there's also a set of costs that go into raising those replacement females. So it's all about finding kind of what works for you in terms of what it would cost you to raise them versus buy them. Absolutely. And I think putting those together, the other thing I would say is have a strategy. Go into it with a plan 
and it needs to be a long-term plan. Everything that we've talked about, you're not going to implement this year and want to change next year. You have to stick with it year over year to really reap the benefits of that plan. So it was great having you on, Megan. We really appreciated your input and being able to answer some of these listener questions with us today. Megan, again, as I mentioned, is a geneticist that works here at the Animal Science Department at Kansas State University, so we're happy to have her share her expertise with us. If you have questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.